This is Hashtag History, episode 97. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. <laughs> I, I needed my notes. <laughs> you need your notes to find that. As I believe most of our listeners know, we are big into true crime. I mean, who isn't right. at this point? Nowadays. Yeah. We are all about true crime podcasts and books and documentaries. And the beauty of this podcast is that there are so many historical true crime events that we can totally cover both of our fascination with true crime and history all in one. Yeah, they tend to overlap a lot. Totally not on purpose at all. <laughs> <laughs> and we're certainly taking advantage of that that beautiful blend that can happen uh, in this week's episode. Much like a good wine. It's a good yes. blend. It's a good pairing, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> because this week we are discussing Paul Schaefer, not to be confused with the musician on the David Letterman show. Noted. Schaefer was a Nazi who, following World War II, had to flee Germany when he was charged with sexually abusing two boys at the orphanage that he ran there. He fled to Chile, where he would establish a super creepy and torturous cult known as the Colonia Dignidad, or in English, Dignity Colony, where he would physically and sexually abuse minors and torture political deviants, all with the support of the Chilean government. Schaefer would run this cult for over 30 years before he would finally be caught and charged with the crimes. To kind of sum this guy up in one story, let's visit one that comes from the mid-1970s. So this is during, you know, the running of this cult. And this is just one example to really demonstrate what kind of guy we're dealing with this week. Okay. So every kid loves Santa Claus, right? Yeah. One day, a few days before Christmas, Schaefer gathered together all the children of Colonia Dignidad, put them on a bus, and drove them out to a river where he had told them Santa was coming to visit. When they reached the river, indeed, there was a man there dressed like Santa. Schaefer pulled out a gun and shot Santa, who fell into the river and then appeared to drown. Santa. Santa. It's so awful. That's really bad. Schaefer turned to the children, told them that Santa was now dead, and that Schaefer's birthday was the only holiday that would ever be celebrated in Colonia Dignidad. So that's what we're dealing with this week. Mm. That's what we got here. Mm, narcissistic, socio, psychopath, sociopath. I don't intend to diagnose anyone, but I think both of those sound right. <laughs> if you couldn't already tell from the brief introduction that I've given, we will be discussing some pretty intense and potentially triggering topics this week. We will be discussing sexual assault, pedophilia, physical violence, drug use, and torture. This episode is particularly heinous, I would say more so than most of the other ones that we've covered, even when we've been dealing with heavy topics such as this. So if any of those topics are triggering for you, no problem. And we'll just see you next week for another episode about another historical controversy minus the sexual violence. But if you are sticking around, know that we will be treating these heavy topics with the most care and grace and sensitivity possible. With all of that having been said, I vote we dive into a drink before diving into this week's topic. Yes, we need it. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Hey. 
firstly, we'd like to give a huge shout out to American History Nut or American underscore history underscore nut on Instagram <laughs> who sponsored this week's cocktail and wished us, quote, best of luck with your podcast. Yay. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Thank you. We really appreciate you. And for anyone else that wants to buy us a cocktail and be shouted out on future episodes, you can find a link to do so on our website's um, support us page at hashtag history pod.com. Or there's also a link tree link in our Instagram bio at hashtag history underscore podcast. Yes, that is where you can go to do that. And we so appreciate the support. I mean, we just feel super lucky to have been supported for like from the day we started our we've cocktail. never missed an episode like we've, we've ne- never yeah. so exactly. I think we we announced it at our like two year anniversary show that we did that. Hey, here's a new way that you can support the podcast. That was a year ago now almost, yeah. and we have had every cocktail sponsored since then. Yeah. Now that I put that into words, that's really super amazing. It is sweet. Thank you so much for yeah. that, everyone. So today's cocktail hails from Peru or Chile. (laughs) There's some contention as to where it actually originates. And it gets its name from the main liquor it is composed of. It's called the Pisco Sour. Yes. And it's main component. It's Pisco. Yes. Okay. So it contains Pisco, lime juice, simple syrup, egg white to make it frothy and then you garnish with Angostura bitters and just to sum it all up you basically put everything except the bitters into a dry shaker shake vigorously so it gets all foamy make sure it doesn't explode on you like it did on us (laughs) our hands are still kind of sticky yeah it got under my watch and it's like very much stuck to my skin now (laughs) I have two toes that are stuck together yeah And then you you then you add the ice and you shake it again just a little bit to cool it and then you strain it into your glass and garnish with a few drops of Angostura bitters. Also, don't shoot Angostura bitters halfway across the room. Not that that also happens. (laughs) Jeez, what a mess. Yeah, what a mess. It it was a little messy. So, like I said, according to Liquor.com, Chile and Peru bicker fiercely over the pisco sours origin and that of pisco liquor you know, on its own. Mm. But by most accounts, the drink's genesis is actually tied to a U.S. citizen. Mm. Expat bartender Victor Morris is believed to have concocted the frothy smooth cocktail at his Lima bar around 1915 or perhaps the early 1920s. Either way, I think you and I can decide definitively today (laughs) if the Pisco Sour is indeed a cocktail worth fighting over. Because our opinions matter most. More than the entire country or, of Chile or Peru. <laughs> Cheers. Mm. This is delicious. Oh my God. It's so good. Delicious. My husband has had these before. He talks about them. He's been telling me for a long time that I need to try one. This is my first time trying it. Yeah. It is so good. And I'm sad that I hadn't tried this before. Yeah. It's frothy. You can really taste the Pisco and it's not the Pisco isn't gross. Like it actually no. tastes good. It's that's what I say. I don't know if it's the Pisco is just a smoother liquor or if it's a combination of that and because of the egg whites, it's a super, super smooth drink. Yeah. Uh, rating? I was going to say a nine. I'm going to say a 10. <gasps> yeah. This one, I know you're shocked. I'm shocked. This is delicious. Okay. 9.5 for all of Chile and Peru. We understand why you are fighting over it. You're um, a girl worth fighting for. You're, you're a girl worth fighting for. Amazing. So how does this all begin? Not much is known about Paul Schaefer's early life. All we really know is that he was born near Bonn, Germany on December 4th, 1921 to a Lutheran family. And really the only thing we know about his childhood is, well, (laughs) I'm going to have you check out a picture of him uh, that was taken when he was much older. 
And it's not exactly obvious what I'm hoping you're going to point out. So I'll, I'll set you in the right direction. Whoa, look at those ears. Yeah, the, the ears are pretty intense. To be honest, I hadn't noticed those. <laughs> now that we're examining his full face. It takes up about a third of his face. I would venture to say more. I would venture to say three fourths, bordering on 85%. <laughs> oh, but we're not. Well, I guess I don't feel that bad making fun of him. Um, but no, I think what you were probably referencing is one of his eyes looks like more hooded than the yes. other. Yes. So it isn't like, it doesn't super stand out. No. But one of those eyes is a, a little, it's drooping a little more than the other. And yeah. that is because that is a glass eye. Oh. Yeah. Because when he was a kid, there was an accident um, with a fork. Ah. One of my sources said the accident occurred when Schaefer was attempting to untie his shoe with the fork. Is that a common thing in Bond? <laughs> it's like, I just would never think that. Like, I've had very tightly tied shoes before that I've tried to get untied. Fork was not the first uh, resource for me, no. really. Um, either way, however this accident did happen uh he ended up gouging out his <gasps> eyeball <gasps> with a fork <laughs> yeah so leah just passed out and i'll just do a solo episode from now on i guess oh my god that's gross it's really gross either way he would later tell people that he lost this eyeball during the war speaking of the war mm. let's think time and place here we're talking about the late 1920s early 1930s in Germany, when Schaefer was growing up, I'm not sure that you're very familiar with, you know, um, what might have been going on I, at that I, time. I, there might have been a couple conflicts. Yeah. Minor disputes, honestly. Right. Um, yeah. So World War II, obviously. He's growing up in Germany. Schaefer, he ends up joining the Hitler Youth. The Hitler Youth was a movement early in Nazi Germany whose sole purpose was to train young boys basically on how to be a Nazi. At the age of six, every boy was expected to join a Nazi youth group. At the age of 10, after passing a racial purity test, they were registered into the German Young People's Group. And at 13, a boy would officially become a part of the Hitler Youth. By 1935, roughly 60% of German boys were a part of the Hitler Youth. And by 1939, it would become mandatory for all Aryan boys to join. This is, I, you know, I always have to throw in my pop culture references. And honestly, thank you for that, because I, I feel like I never understand any of them. Oh. So it, it's good. It's a good uh, sprinkling in those things yeah. for the people that do know. So the first one that this makes me think of is um, Jojo Rabbit, the movie Jojo Rabbit, which came out, I feel like it was like 2018, 2019. Okay. I still haven't seen it, but it's definitely on the list of yeah. things I know I need to watch. And it's by Taika Waititi, who mm -hmm. I love his viewpoint and his sense of humor. It's like it's actually like kind of a dark comedy mm. about some a, a kid, a, a little boy who was in the Hitler oh, youth. Wow. But it it's like funny. They make it fun. Okay. Yeah. It's like satirical. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. During World War II, Schaefer would serve as a medic, eventually reaching the rank of corporal. Following the war, Schaefer became a Lutheran youth leader at an evangelical church. This wouldn't last very long, though, due to rumors that he was molesting young boys there. And that's where those rumors start and finish. That's really all we know about that. But I think it's safe to say that those rumors were true because we know only a handful of years later in 1953, when Schaefer established an orphanage, he would continue this horrendous behavior there. In 1959, he would be charged with sexually abusing two young boys in this orphanage. A warrant was issued for his arrest. 
Despite these allegations, Schaefer had built a bit of a following, and in an attempt to flee Germany as a result of these charges, he and his followers would, after a small period of time in the Middle East, they would relocate to Chile in 1961. So while he was running this orphanage, he was already kind of establishing a cult. Totally. So I'm so glad you asked that, um, because it's not in my notes necessarily, but... Yeah, so he's like, you know, a youth leader, evangelical guy. He needed finances and funding to start up this orphanage. So he had to kind of be like campaigning and putting his really charismatic personality out there. And so he did end up getting a group of followers. And, you know, there are always those people that are saying, you know, oh, they're just haters. Those that were trying to take down the orphan or you take him down because he's doing this amazing thing at the orphanage. No, those aren't true. Those rumors about him molesting children um so yeah that was a good question because he yeah he had gathered groups of people that thought he was this really amazing guy and Mm -hmm. doing this really amazing thing okay i think that that's a good segue now to kind of reflect on what and who exactly they were following right like what was this schaefer guy preaching that was so appealing to them yeah and in order to get into the ideology of schaefer we have to look into the ideology of the man that schaefer was a follower of a man named william branham have you ever heard of him no, I don't think so. So this episode, it's not about William Branham. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But to really wrap things up in a neat little package, Branham was an American preacher that really, quote unquote, because I'm not sure how else to say it, came into power shortly after World War II, which was the time to come to power in a religious sense. Following the Second World War, the United States saw such a rapid increase in church membership that church membership actually grew faster than the national population. Wow. I, I don't know that that's totally shocking, right? Following a something as devastating yeah. as a World War, you're trying to come to terms to, with it and gain some sort of understanding and, and meaning. Peace. Totally. Yeah. The U.S. in particular saw an increase in churchgoers from 57% in 1950 to more than 63% in 1960. And Branham took full advantage of this. And there are two main reasons that we're talking about Branham. One, because I want to establish that Paul Schaefer got much of his ideology from Branham. Branham was all about women having zero autonomy, following the Bible to a T, promoting anti-communism, and just had an all-over, like, doomsday, apocalyptic mindset. Cool. That was the belief system that Schaefer continued. Mm -hmm. The second reason we're talking about Branham is because... One other of Branham's close followers would be a certain someone that we are very familiar with here on the Hashtag History Podcast. So think all the way back, if you can, to episodes 28 and 29. Think of another cult leader that we covered known for abusing his followers. John Jacob Jingleheimer Jim Jones. (laughs) Jingleheimer Jim, his name is my name too. (laughs) Um, That was amazing. Yep, that's him. Jim Jones. Uh, He was also a major early follower of Branham. Mm -hmm. And from studying Jim Jones, we know that he would end up bringing all of his followers to a remote part of Guyana where he would establish Jonestown, which I find very interesting since Schaefer, too, would do something very similar. As I was doing research for this one, it's, you know, it's Branham, it's Jim Jones. It's, yeah, the parallels of like, I need to escape my current surroundings and establish myself in a remote colony, essentially, where I can block out outside influences. Yeah, totally. And I think that, you know, you're limiting 
the influences that your people can have leaning not only other that, opinions. Yeah, and, not only to yourself, but to the people that are with him. Exactly. Yeah, probably more importantly to the people that are with him. Exactly, exactly, because then you can't, you you never have dissenting opinions. Well, and that's, I mean, that's people's arguments about certain countries that don't mm-hmm. allow outside news or outside, like, social media. Mm-hmm. But yeah, who, who can blame them for thinking, you know, along certain lines when that's literally all they've been told because they, everything else has been shut off to them. Exactly. Exactly. They've never heard otherwise a, a various yeah. opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after fleeing Germany and then living in the Middle East for a period of time, Schaefer, with the distinct permission of the then Chilean president, Jorge Alessandri, would move along with his followers to a remote, isolated 4,400 acres of land in Chile. And how many followers did he have, you ask? A lot. A lot? A lot. How? <sighs> you must be really... Charismatic. Suave. There was a quote that said something along the lines. I think it said he had charisma that shone out of him like beams of light. It was something similar to that. And I think all these people have to, yeah, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and even, you know, it's interesting that we did draw a parallel to Jim Jones because they do have so many things that are so similar. Mm-hmm. They're also super different in that, like, Jim Jones, one of the really appealing parts of him was that he was all for, like, social justice, yeah. elevating diverse voices. So many of his followers were black, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This guy's a Nazi, so that's not the case yeah. here. Uh, not the case here, but obviously he had something that was appealing and attractive about him. Yeah. And I think also we're talking about a time period. These are all, like, German people that are following him. Shortly after the World War, Second World War, they're very vulnerable. Totally. Uh, they've seen a lot. They're looking for meaning and peace and understanding. And, you know, during that vulnerable part of their life, I guess they found it in him. Yeah. Initially, it was just 10 of these OG followers that came along with Schaefer to first establish the colony. But by the time the final wave of families following Schaefer had immigrated in 1973, we're looking at roughly 300 people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Over time, they would add to this group of people when they adopted or kidnapped some of the local Chilean children. What? Yeah, we haven't even gotten there yet. This colony that Schaefer established would be called Colonia Dignidad, or, you know, like I already shared in English, Colony Dignity. Hey there. Nice to meet you. I'm Alicia. Do you like history? Are you long on curiosity, but short on time? Well, you're in luck. Each week on Civics and Coffee, you'll get a short overview of a person or topic in U.S. history, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. I cover the known and unknown, all in bite-sized episodes. Available wherever you get your pods or at the website, civicsandcoffee.com. New episodes released each Saturday. See you soon. Pretty early on, trouble was evident. For one, Schaefer did not allow for children to live with their parents. In fact, he had a separate house specifically for the children, while the majority of the adults lived together, generally in groups of six or more, where they, you know, in their little kind of like dorms, had next to no personal belongings. Separating children from their families is like a siren. Like that, uh, that's like a, a red flag. A red flag. A huge, huge red flag. Yeah. To justify this, Schaefer said, quote, the problems in child education aren't the children. They are always the parents because the parents are responsible for the sins of the children, unquote. 
He would ask his followers, who are my mother and father? And it was drilled into them to respond with, quote, those that do the work of God, unquote. Interestingly, Schaefer had his own private apartment inside the children's home. Yeah. This separation would extend to men and women, too, in an effort to not give in to the, quote, sins of the flesh, unquote. Schaefer also forced men and women to be segregated and forced celibacy on the majority of his followers, even amongst married couples. To keep temptation at bay, women were forced to wear baggy clothes and wear their hair up in tight buns, which, I mean, is how I look every day. So <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. So I'm familiar with that. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's cre- even couples that had previously been married were, for the most part, no longer allowed to continue those relations. Which it's so interesting because if his whole mindset is to strictly follow the Bible, or at least that's mm-hmm. where he started from, obviously, like sex amongst married couples is it's totally acceptable. Totally acceptable. Yeah. And procreating is totally acceptable and in the encouraged. Bible. And encouraged. Yeah. And that's something else that we'll be talking about not too long from now. <sighs> Fiscally and economically speaking, Schaefer was running a very successful colony on the backs of unpaid, hard hard labor we're talking that those like in the colony were generally working about 12 plus hours a day Mm. over the 30 plus years that schaefer would run this colony they would establish a 65 bed hospital two airstrips a school a restaurant and a power station whoa and you know going back to the establishment of this hospital it's really important to note that for the local Chilean people, they didn't have many other options or resources for healthcare. So when this colony started offering free healthcare to locals, this was a really, really big deal. And I think, you know, if we want to really dive into it, super strategic and manipulative. Oh, 100%. And and, yeah. I mean, he, he knew that he would need the support of locals and the government and just giving off the facade that he was this really generous charitable guy. I think that's the MO of most like manipulative people is to see what's missing in an area mm. and then I don't know. Yeah, filling that gap. Fill, fill that gap or in an area or in a person or in yeah. whatever. That actually th- yeah, that kind of gave me chills a little bit cuz I I totally agree that manipulative people find what's missing in a person. Yeah. and fill in that gap and that's how they take advantage of people. Mhm. Over the course of the hospital's operation, they would provide treatment to some 26,000 people. For new moms, they had this uh, system in place where the hospital would supply them with powdered milk every single month for the first six years after the birth of their child. Wow. Which meant that, you know, for some, they were able to then overlook the fact that children treated at this hospital were oftentimes abused or even essentially kidnapped and never returned to their families. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine that? Giving your, because it's really your only resource like my kid is very very sick yeah free health care and then they just literally never give you your child back oh my gosh the colonia dignidad community was essentially built on betrayal and mistrust for one people were not allowed to speak to one another privately in groups of two there always had to be more than two people present in fact schaefer said the reason for this was quote if two are gathered they are under the devil if three are gathered they are under jesus unquote oh Okay. So we're under the devil. We are under the devil. (laughs) And and to go back to what you were just saying about, um, you know, abiding by the Bible, this guy clearly wasn't because I, I grew up in church. Like I've read the Bible many times. Yeah. It's it's like one, it's like two two or or more. Yeah. It's two or more. And that is a place of worship or something. No, that's exactly what it says. It's uh, Matthew 18, 20. And it says where two or three are gathered in my name. 
there am I there I will be also or there am I with them yeah um so like the bible itself says groups of two are cool so <laughs> you know so, as they say it's all right but I mean obviously we know what he was doing here right he didn't want people to build bonds he didn't want people to talk and reveal secrets that shouldn't be revealed totally that's a lot like um what's her name from bat uh bad blood yes like how I've she just would totally isolate in theranos thank mm-hmm. you elizabeth holmes mm-hmm. and she would just totally like isolate groups from each other so that there couldn't be that exactly. nobody everybody was kept in the dark because nobody could communicate what they were actually doing totally to build on this mistrust schaefer also established a humiliating and very public system of confessing your sins and reporting the sins of others Confessions were expected to be made every single day in front of groups of people. And you were expected to out someone else if they were not confessing to a sin that you knew they had committed. At mealtimes, there was a big blackboard in the cafeteria and members of the colony were expected to write down the names of people that had sinned. Schaefer would then take a microphone and read these names aloud. Sometimes, you know, simply because the reward someone could receive for doing so, they would out someone else, even if a sin hadn't been committed. And because you were not allowed to deny a sin, you would essentially just have to make something up if your name ended up getting called out. Yeah. And also like, I'm sure what they consider sinful is not like, like totally. It could be anything. I've heard people share this before. This isn't at all a dig at like the Catholic faith, but confession is a part of the Catholic faith. And I've heard from people that grew up in that faith that they felt as kids like, okay, it's confession time. And they just had to like come up. Yeah. With stuff. And it, it can be something as simple as like, um, I stole a piece of bread or like, or, or I, even something like I used too much toilet paper when I wiped my butt this morning or yeah. something like that. Like you're just trying to come up with anything. And it kind of gives me the same vibes here. Like, and yeah, if you're like faced with like, Rachel, you sinned, what did you do? I'd be like, I, I thought about pizza. I don't know. <laughs> While I was for too it, long i thought about pizza for too long totally <laughs> I, I i don't know how how well those things would fly here but there was you know kind of a reward system in place for those that did out others and that reward could honestly just be as simple as cool you're not going to get punished today yeah you don't have to work more than 12 hours today right punishment for sins was horrendous this punishment could include withholding food having dogs sicked on you, being beaten, being subjected to even harder labor, enduring horrendous shock treatment, or essentially being ostracized from the community. If you were determined by Schaefer to be a quote-unquote rebel, you were forced to wear specific clothing to identify yourself as such to the whole community. Rebel scum. (laughs) Sorry, that was a Star Wars reference. I I got that one, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I I, uh, am not a major Star Wars person, but I have two brothers. So I I do. I've seen all the movies. Yeah. So I got the reference. Thanks. Good. Yeah. For the men, they were forced to wear bright red shirts. And for the women, they were forced to wear literal potato sacks over their already baggy clothing. One particular rebel, uh, a man named Franz Barr, was beaten so severely by colony members that his skull would break and he would have to spend time at the colony's hospital. Yeah. If that wasn't bad enough, he never left the hospital, which kind of sounds like a horror movie, right? For sure. (laughs) And then they never left. For the next 31 years, Barr was forced to stay in an upstairs section of the hospital where he was regularly heavily sedated, making it that much more difficult for him to even attempt escape. He was still forced to perform hard labor every day, which included operating heavy machinery, all while being incredibly medicated. The 
hell was that like that was just a continuation of his punishment for whatever quote-unquote sin he did yeah uh he was considered by schaefer to be a rebel someone that obviously clearly wanted to break out of this community and schaefer couldn't have that he couldn't have someone exposing his dirty laundry and so he just kept him in this perpetual state of um incapacity i guess is the word i would use yeah all this time, Schaefer was actively sexually assaulting young boys in the colony. In fact, it was a regular occurrence for him to sedate them, give them a sponge bath, and then molest them. He was known to always have a few boys with him at all times and even dictated what type of clothing they could wear on their bottom half so that it would not be too much of an inconvenience to remove them quickly and easily. <sighs> Over time, Schaefer would end up expanding this colony from 4,400 acres to 32,000. Because his community was considered to be a charity, given how much benefit their hospital provided to the locals, Schaefer was able to smuggle weapons from Germany, such as machine guns, without having his packages checked. That was all part of being like a charitable institution. Yeah. And he did all of this with the support of the Chilean government. Yeah. On September 11th, 1973, Augusto Pinochet, a man who had openly admitted to being a Nazi sympathizer, seized control of Chile when a coup killed the former president. Pinochet ran with a militant objective, suspending the constitution, banning all political parties, and creating the National Intelligence Directorate, which was a police force designed to capture anyone that was not loyal to him and to throw them into detention centers or worse. By the end of 1973, he had killed more than 1,500 people. Between Pinochet being an admitted Nazi sympathizer and the fact that Chile and Germany have had a long-standing military relationship, he and Schaefer got along just well. Yeah, I'm sure. By the following year, Pinochet would grant Schaefer not only the right to dig for gold and uranium, but he would also grant Schaefer a Mercedes-Benz limousine. Obviously, though... Pinochet wasn't giving Schaefer all of this without something in return. Mm -hmm. No, in return, Schaefer's colony would end up being directly responsible for capturing and brutally torturing any Chileans that did not fall in line with Pinochet's rule. I, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I That's kind of how this whole episode feels is it's so disturbing and so wild and so crazy that you almost can't pinpoint what you're thinking about right and, and like so count everything is like counter not counterintuitive but it's like he says one thing and then he does mm. he does another he which i know that's not uncommon for like cult crazy yeah. cult leader people but i don't know it just seems no, like i get what you're saying it feels like a cult should have clear objectives clear mindset yeah. clear beliefs and this guy just contradicts himself left and right yeah yeah, I agree with you. This torture that the colony would inflict on these political deviants included shock treatment, being stabbed with needles, being burned, punched, doused in warm water, followed immediately by cold water, and being deprived of food and sleep. And while no bodies have ever actually been recovered, it is generally believed that the colony did kill people. In fact, there is this one horrible story that comes from a former member of the colony who was ordered by Schaefer to drive a bus of 35 people, all of whom were quote unquote disloyal to the Chilean government. Uh, he was told to drive this bus out to an abandoned part of the colony. And as he was leaving, you know, so he left the bus there and then he takes off as he's leaving. He heard machine guns going off behind Ugh. him. Okay, so all of this is horrendous. Yes, <laughs> yes. But unless you were in the colony or in high positions within the government with close association, you really didn't know 
the full extent of what was going on at Colonia Dignidad. And this was very, very intentional. Schaefer very intentionally projected an image of the colony as a place of harmony and peace to those outside the community, a charitable place that provided free health care to the less fortunate locals. He even had promotional like press videos put together showing how happy this community was, showing the men harvesting the fields, showing the women in the kitchen making the food. When a man named Wolfgang Mueller escaped the colony and fled to Germany in 1966, telling them, you know, the atrocities that had occurred within the community, the Chilean government did have a delegate sent to check out what was going on. Mm -hmm. This delegate was greeted by the children singing songs and being served with fancy food. Swayed by it all, the delegate, you know, ends up determining everything's fine and he didn't investigate anything further. <sighs> Over time, others, such as the German government, requested of Pinochet to conduct a joint investigation, but they were denied over and over again. Mm -hmm. Within the community, Schaefer operated a very controlled environment. This kind of goes back to we were talking about like reproduction earlier. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, this goes right into that. He had controlled the environment so much that in the 30 plus years that he ran this colony, only about 60 children were born. And that's there's like how many people? There's like 300 plus people. Yes. That's pretty crazy. Between the years of 1979 and 1985. So we're looking at like a six year period there. Yeah. Not a single child was born in this colony whoa even you know when a man got up the nerve to ask schaefer if he could get married this did happen you know from time to time the yeah. men would say like hey i'd like to have a intimate relationship with a woman uh schaefer was the one that got to select the wife which oftentimes meant that schaefer would select a woman who was older in age and unable to bear children hmm for those women that did have children during Schaefer's reign, their children were taken away from them, raised by the hospital nurses, and the mother was ordered to immediately return to work. Schaefer's rationale for this, like this whole like kind of reproduction thing, it's a little unclear. It's it, not a little. It is unclear to me. Yeah. Um, and to many others that have researched Colonia Dignidad. I kind of wanted to leave that open ended. Like if you had any thoughts, like why... I, I think it's control. Yeah. I, that can be my only thought. But again, counterintuitive if he likes children. Exactly. You would think he'd want more. I don't know. The whole thing is just weird and confusing. I just, when you just said the control thing, I did just have a thought, though, that maybe eventually over time he was fearful of there was going to be that one mom that was like, no, you can't take yeah. my kid from me. Or like over time, you know, parents might end up banding together after so many children had been taken from them. And hey, if he wants more children, he can always just steal them from the locals. Right. Right. Exactly. You're right. They, they, they don't need to be bred in the community. Yeah. He can uh, take from outside the community. I'm sure for many of them, it was probably impossible or hard to yeah. give up their children to this. But yeah, I'm surprised it didn't happen more often. <laughs> I know. I know. And we'll kind of dig into that, like just kind of like the mental piece of all this uh, shortly. Okay. Things didn't really start to change within the colony until roughly the late 1990s. Schaefer had started up a boarding school within the community, which he opened up to local Chilean miners. He invited these miners to live in the colony where they would work and study until they turned 18. And not knowing any better, you know, going back to what we were kind of just saying, really not knowing anything about this colony other than that they had benefited the community significantly by way of free health care and knowing that they were supported by the local government, many parents outside of the community signed their children up for this boarding school yeah however in 1996 a 12-year-old who was a student at the school wrote to his mother saying quote take me out of here he raped me unquote 
His mother got him the hell out of there and got in touch with the chief of the National Detective Force in Chile, Luis Henriquez. And Henriquez went to work. Get it, Henriquez? <laughs> Get it. Backed by 26 accounts of abuse by children that had been at the Colonia Dignidad Hospital or school, a warrant for Schaefer's arrest was finally issued in August of 1996. But when Henriquez and 30 armed officers went to apprehend Schaefer at Colonia Dignidad in November of that year, Schaefer was nowhere to be found. Henriquez had expected to have been met with resistance when he reached the colony, hence the 30 armed officers that he brought with him. Yeah. Uh, But he was met with the nearly opposite response. As Henriquez would be quoted as saying of the people there, he said they, quote, were like zombies or maybe like robots. They were machines. On, off, on, off, on, off. They didn't change moods like normal people, unquote. I don't think that that is totally unexpected from a group of people that are like fed next to no food, oftentimes sleep deprived, work 12 plus hours a day. Like you have zero energy to even. And then mentally and emotionally abused on top of it. Exactly. And probably some and sometimes physically abused. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I I do think that's interesting that he went into it thinking like there was going to be this like almost militant response to him being there. And instead he was met with like a bunch of zombies. Yeah. It's really sad. Yeah. The people within the colony would provide no details about Schaefer's whereabouts, and despite another 30 more raids on the property over the years, Henriquez never found him. On later raids at the property, some of the members of the colony would eventually cooperate with authorities, showing them the underground tunnels and bunkers, showing them empty mass graves, and even Schaefer's insane collection of weapons. This collection included, but it's not limited to, 104 semi-automatic rifles, 92 machine guns, nearly 2,000 grenades, TNT, and rocket launchers, many of which were from like the World War II era. Which it's the 90s now, so yeah. that those are like antiques. Exactly. Isn't that weird? Whoa. No one is really sure when exactly Schaefer fled the colony. Not knowing where he was, they tried him, even in his absence in 2004, uh, finding him guilty on charges of child abuse. He was also wanted in Germany and in France in relation to previous child abuse allegations. On March 10th, 2005, Schaefer was finally located eight years after he first went missing. Jeez. He was found living it up in a soup's fancy gated community near Buenos Aires, Argentina. He was extradited to Chile and was charged there with the disappearance of a political activist back in 1976. On May 24th, 2006, Schaefer was sentenced to 20 years behind bars for the sexual abuse of 25 children, 20 counts of abuse, and five counts of child rape. I'm not laughing about child rape. I'm laughing about Leah's face of shock and disgust. That's not even one year per count. Right. That's shocking. That's Mm -hmm. a shockingly low sentencing. And I'm not familiar with chilean yeah uh, i I mean me neither sentences but that is where he was tried and so i think part of why it's so alarming to us well yeah part of why it's so alarming to us is because of the american justice system you would hope that someone facing several counts of sexual abuse you know accounts of child rape and other forms of abuse would certainly get more than 20 years behind bars yeah he was also ordered to pay nearly 1.5 million dollars to the minors that had filed claims against him In January of 2013, six other leaders of the colony would be sentenced to prison and 10 others would be given probationary sentences for their crimes. On April 24th, 2010, Schaefer would die at the age of 88 from heart failure. 
So something that we have not addressed really at all up to this point in this episode, because I intentionally wanted to wait until the end so we could just have a full on discussion about it is how and why did these people put up with this for so long? Obviously, we do not victim blame, but I think it's natural to consider from time to time throughout this episode, like, (laughs) why would these people follow this child molester from Germany to Chile, participate in these political crimes, allow him to abuse their children and the locals to live separately from their loved ones, and so on? Yeah. And outside of the normal things that people involved in cults experience, I think it's important to put the unique lens on this one that, you know, these people were escaping Germany following World War II. Yeah. It was super freaking common (laughs) to escape Germany following the war, particularly if you were a Nazi. Mm -hmm. Many Nazis did this. It was very common in Germany following the war to watch your loved ones that had served in the Nazi party be captured, arrested, and or forced into labor camps by the Allied forces. I think these people were desperate, and I think they were vulnerable. And I also think that they had seen a lot of shit. Whatever atrocities they faced while in this colony may not have felt all that bad compared to what they had seen and done in Germany, both during the war and immediately thereafter. Not to mention all the other things about being in a cult. Brainwashing, love bombing, control, told over and over that this was for a religious purpose, and so on. Yeah. And I also think, like you said, they were part of the Nazi party, I'm, mm-hmm. and they're closed off from the west, rest of the world. I'm sure that they thought, I have nowhere else I can yeah. go. Like, this is the only place where totally. I'm not going to be persecuted or socially ostracized ostracized for my participation in that totally i think that's exactly it is like i said it was really 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 common for former nazis to flee germany yeah or families of former nazis to flee germany so it was just this group of people it was like a lot of those followers that he had you know a huge chunk of them were initial followers Mm -hmm. and then the next like waves of people that came a lot of those were the families of those followers yeah they were probably writing back to their family like oh it sucks in germany come here yeah it sucks here too but maybe yeah you know it's it's equal it's not as bad as dr niels biderman a chilean psychiatrist who had actually observed colonia dignidad put it quote everything was done to further religion Like in any sect, the colonists had a spiritual leader in Paul Schaefer to whom they formed a strong attachment. There was a complex network of emotional connections in the colonia. It was not a concentration camp system in which prisoners tend to think of themselves as individuals. It was a community and the children suffered the most, unquote. Any final thoughts? Other than that, that was a wild ride. Just, you know, and, you know, yeah. It's just gross. And I I always try to have empathy for the folks that follow, mm-hmm. like our followers mm-hmm. of it, regardless of what their past mm-hmm. was, because being emotionally abused and manipulated and all this stuff is horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think that's something that we do have to do over and over. You know, it feels that way all the time when you hear about these people that ended up following like some crazy leader or yeah. is inv- are involved like, in some well, kind of cult. I would never do that. Exactly. We do this like oftentimes unintentional victim blaming of yeah. assuming that these people were uneducated or assuming crazy, um, you know. That yeah, that they're just yeah, just not intelligent, easily manipulated. Yeah. I think it goes exactly to what you said is a manipulative person finds in you the things that you're seeking, the things that you're missing. Yeah. And so I think virtually anyone can be. Yeah. Manipulated. In the right circumstances and with the right people, I, I do think anybody could be. Right. You know, regardless of education. Oh, totally. And so on. Yeah. 
right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Hashtag History. As always, we will share the pictures that we discussed on this episode to our Instagram and all sources used to put together the episode can be found on our website at hashtag history-pod.com. Subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use, share about us with your family and friends, and then give us a rate and review. Speaking of Instagram, be sure to check us out on there at hashtag history underscore podcast. And we're also on TikTok at hashtag history, all one word. And come support us over on Patreon, where for only $1 a month, you can help support our books and booze supply. You also get access to some behind the scenes content, weekly hashtag hangout episodes, and automatic 15% off all merchandise. And we mail you cards and stickers. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Um, that's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. I'm not. Yeah, maybe. Almost. That was my version. It's like a uh, hiccup bee type yeah, thing. It definitely with gas moving around. Yeah. Um, would provide no detail details details. I'm about to sneeze. Bless you. Thank you. Um. <laughs> I have no brain power today. I, know. I don't know. The different kind of sucking was battle. Uh, I don't like. I that. can just cut that yeah, last thank sentence you. out. You're welcome. <laughs> <clears throat>